Well, let's turn to Ephesians 4. We actually come now to a brand new section in Ephesians. So as I've mentioned before, the book of Ephesians is divided up into two sections. It's divided up into a doctrinal section, as the first three chapters, and a practical section, which is the last three chapters. And there's some doctrine in the last three, and there's some practical in the first three. But there's a pretty clean, clean and clear break in the middle of the letter. And so we happen now to come into that next part. But I think that, you know, as because it's a letter and it's meant to be read in one sitting, and we're doing it, you know, in little chunks every Sunday, um, we could start the doctrinal sec or the practical section and just kind of forget all the doctrinal section that we just read. It's meant to be read all together. And the doctrine, the things that Paul has just been talking about, just been explaining to us, is supposed to be fresh in our mind. So I thought before we read our passage, we could just review very briefly. Paul starts the letter by praising God. He starts the letter by blessing God the Father. And he blesses God the Father for blessing us with every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. That's how he starts. It's, it, it's an explosive beginning. And he begins then to, un, he begins to open that package of what it is to be blessed with every spiritual blessing. But remember, first thing he says is that if you're a believer in Jesus, you are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. Meaning, it's all there. You have to look into heaven to see that. If you look at things from the earthly perspective, you won't probably see that. But from heaven's perspective, you've got it all. This is what he says. And you've got it all because of Jesus and not because of you. He talks about how God chose you from before the foundation of the world. So if you believe in him and have received these blessings, it's because you were chosen from before the foundation of the world. God was the one who sought you and not you him. And he adopted you into his family. So not only are you just a Christian, you could say that, you're, you're a believer, you're a child of God, you're adopted into his family. God has made you his own. He owns you, he loves you, he takes care of you. I think we forget this easily. Forget this very easily. Because a lot of the times we just think our Christian life is just us hanging on, you know. But it says in First Ephesians chapter 1, the first chapter, that we're his children because he chose us and adopted us out of the orphanage of the world, that sinful place. And he's the one who's committed to our well-being. And then it tells us in verse 7 of chapter 1 that we have, through his blood, the redemption and the forgiveness of sins. So he's, we start with this understanding that all your sins are forgiven in Jesus, past, present, and future. Forgiveness is something you have you have that as a possession. It's part of this package. And you've got the whole thing. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Because we sin, and what are we tempted to think when we sin? What is Satan prone to tell us? Oh, you're condemned for that. But if we would remember or look into the heavenlies, we'd see, no, I'm forgiven. I have the forgiveness of sins. Why, do, why am I forgiven? Because I'm such a great guy? No, because of the blood of Christ. Because of the redemption that's in his blood according to the riches of his grace. Another thing we see in heaven is riches. All over Ephesians, the word riches comes up. You look into heaven, what do you see? How wealthy God is. And he's not wealthy necessarily with 
American U.S. dollars, but he's wealthy with grace. That means he's not stingy at all with grace. And so often our view of God's grace is like our view of our parents' wallet, you know. And maybe you know they don't have much money, or maybe they have some money to spare. Dad, can you spot me some cash today, please? You know, I've been good. I washed the car. I did this. I haven't been, etc. But with God, he has wealth that is unimaginable. And it's limitless. You can't track it out. If you were to begin studying his grace, you could never find the end of it. And so Paul, we see later, prays according to the riches of God's grace, that, he would, that God would uh, strengthen us. So he appeals to that. He says, God, you are so rich in grace. Bless the Ephesian Christians. Bless the family of God. So do we think, of, do we think these, this way? It's so easy just to read it and quickly agree with it and assent to it and then leave church and forget it. But do we live remembering what we have in Christ in heaven? Even just the things I've mentioned already. I probably won't do the whole thing but in detail, but... You're a child of God. He's committed to your well-being. He's rich in grace towards you. He's forgiven you of all your sin. Just that alone. God wants us to remember that. And, um, and in another letter, I've mentioned this before, in Colossians chapter 3, Paul says, set your mind on things above. That's exactly what is here in Ephesians. That's what is things above. So when Paul says, set your mind on things above walls, you're supposed to remember Ephesians and what it says you have in Jesus. That means remember you have every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. Another thing it says here is that if you believe the gospel, then the Holy Spirit sealed you unto the day of redemption. That means you are God's and you are sealed and he is going to carry that through all the way to the end. What a wonderful promise. So, as we come to chapter 4, this is supposed to be fresh in our minds. So just take a minute and remember. Think about that. and Set your mind on things above. The doctrinal section and the practical section are vitally connected. They're not supposed to be two completely isolated sections. They're connected, and the one flows out of the other. Can you guess which one flows out of which? The practical flows out of the doctrinal it, as, you, as we'll see here, it does. And we need to have both of these things. It's very important. Because if all we have, let's, let's ask this question, what is it if all we have is doctrine? We don't have any practical. And all we have is these things. Well, what happens is we arrive at a dead orthodoxy. So we've talked about Brad. We arrive at just having knowledge. We get puffed up. And we got all these facts, but it's dead. It's a dead orthodoxy. But what happens if all we have is practice? We say, who cares about doctrine? So, this is, so before I'm talking about someone who says, all you need is doctrine, who cares about practice? You don't need to do anything. It's not important. Let's just focus on this. You just have dead orthodoxy. Everyone's just studying. But if all we have is practice and say, who cares about doctrine? What doctrine is not important. Everything in Ephesians 1 to 3 is not important. The only thing that is important is that we just be kind and nice to each other. And that's the thing that God ultimately cares about. Then we don't have Christianity anymore. So we either have dead, boring Christianity that doesn't have any life in it, or we have no Christianity at all. We just have something that's not Christianity. 
It's just moralism. And that's not, that's not right either. That's not going to help anybody or save anyone. But put the two together and you have a living truth. And I was thinking about it. It's like a train. Have you ever seen a train? They're usually carrying lots of cargo, right? But think of the doctrine of Christianity and the doctrine that we've been reading as the locomotive, as the engine. That gives the power that moves the train. But it carries cargo. There's cargo that it's supposed to carry. And the cargo is like the practical. And God wants us to be motivated and moved by this doctrine, but to carry life and practical and works and good works that God has prepared for us. But if all we have is good works, there's no motivation. There's no power there to do those good works either. And it won't go anywhere. So I was just thinking of that as a train. My old pastor, who's now passed away, he used to say this of, of the gifts of the Spirit, but it applies to this as well. He, he would say, if all you have is the Word, and if you just study, you'll puff up. But if you don't have the Word and you just focus on filled, being filled with the Spirit, you'll blow up. But if you have both, you'll grow up. <laughs> you'll grow up. <clears throat> and... And growing up is the theme here, as we've seen. There's a theme here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, when he talks about the temple. God is building a temple. He's building, using people, a place for his glory to shine. And in chapter 3, Paul's prayer, it's a prayer for maturity. It's a prayer for growing up. I want, he says, I want you to know, I'm praying to God that you would know the love of Christ. That's doctrine, that you would know this truth, this fact. He's not praying that they would do anything, just that they would know the love of Christ. And by knowing the love of Christ, by knowing the grace of God, by knowing what God has done for them and why he's done it, they will grow up, they'll mature. And this theme carries on into chapter 4, and you're probably familiar with this passage in chapter 4, where he talks about maturing, growing as a body, and growing in love together, right? He says he's appointed apostles and prophets and teachers and evangelists that the body might grow in maturity till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So there's maturing that takes place. And this is what he's talking about. This is the theme of the next section. So with that, let's read just the first three verses of chapter 4. We'll begin dissecting and looking at it in detail. So, Ephesians 4, 1 to 3. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness and longsuffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So, Lord, I pray that as we look at this passage and move into this next section, that you would, God, just help us to see what you're saying and no more and no less. I pray that we wouldn't forget the things that you've already shared, but see how they're connected. And I pray that you would cause us to grow and mature in our knowledge of you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.
So Paul says, therefore. He starts by saying, therefore, which connects it all to what he's previously said. Not just to the verse right beforehand, but to the entire section. The entire past section is like the train link that connects the two. And uh, you can tell he's talking about the whole section because in verse 1 he says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the calling wherewith you are called. And he's already mentioned this calling back in chapter 1. If you look at chapter 1, verse 18, Paul prays that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened that you might know what is the hope of his calling. So Paul's already been talking about this calling. And we're going to look at that, what this calling is. But it's the whole section that he's been, that he's connecting with this therefore, this whole section. So what is a calling? Because he tells us here, walk worthy of that calling. So what is a calling? And what is this calling that he's talking about? Well, in the Greek... And it's the same as in the English, essentially. There's not really any difference. So when you think of calling in the English, it's really the same in the original language. But it means an invitation or a summons. So if I called Elliot, it has a wide variety of application. I could call him to come over. I could call him to do something. I could order him to do something. But the idea is a summons or an invitation. And... There's a lot of application. It could be an authoritative call. It could be a really unauthoritative call. I could just call someone's name to ask them for the salt. I might be a king and command them to give me the salt. But the idea is just a call. But a call to what? That's the question. So here, there's a bit of a difference in thinking among some Christians. They say, well, what is God calling us to? Because he's calling us and he's called us. What is this call? And some people say, well, God calls us to holy living. So he says, Linda, live holy. That's the call. That's the call of God. But I disagree with that. Because this calling he's already been talking about in the last three chapters, and he even prays, God, that they would see this and see what hope this calling brings. And so he actually connects the calling with hope in 118. And if you look a few verses down, in verse 4, he says hope again. He says, there's one body and one spirit, even as you are called, in one hope of your calling. So hope is connected with the calling. Now, if the call was Eli live holy, make it to heaven that way. There's no hope. I won't make it. The calling is the call to salvation in Christ. He's called us to come unto Christ. He's called us to believe on Jesus and receive everything that we need, all the righteousness that we need, all the spiritual blessings that we need. They're found in him. So it's a call to hope. It's a call to salvation. But I think what some of the confusion begins because that call to salvation instructs us to live in a certain way. As Paul says here, he says, walk worthy of the calling. And so there's a walk that's consistent with that hope. But the two get blurred and people begin to say, well, the calling is the walk. But there is a distinction between the walk and the calling itself. In 2 Timothy 1.9, 1, 
Paul says this to Timothy about the calling. He says, He has saved us, God has saved us, and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. There's one other thing that needs to be mentioned about this calling. God calls to all men to come to Christ. There's a general calling where the gospel is preached to every person. But there's also an effectual calling. There's a general calling and there's an effectual calling. And really, the two are the exact same. The only difference is one is effective and one isn't. But it's the same call. It's a call to salvation. So God sounds, sends forth his preachers or he's, he speaks from heaven. He speaks to us in many different ways and he calls all men to believe. It's a general calling. He says, believe on me. Look unto me, all the ends of the earth, and be saved. It's a general calling. But there's an effective calling where God actually pinpoints somebody that he's chosen and he calls them like he called Lazarus. He says, Lazarus comes forth and Lazarus comes alive and responds to that call. There's an effectual calling, which Paul's talking about in Timothy here. And I believe Paul's talking about this calling in Ephesians and in many different places throughout the epistles. Often when it talks about our calling, it's talking about that effectual call, not the general call that calls to all men and truly offers them salvation. But knowing that no one will receive it, God effectually calls those whom he's chosen. And I believe this is what he's talking about in Ephesians, the calling You've been called. If you're a believer, you've been called. You've been called by God to come unto him. And if you have believed, you've been effectually called. There's a parable Jesus talked about, he, he told in, in the Gospels. And uh, remember the parable of the wedding feast? And he, he says, go and call everybody. Invite everyone to come. But the problem is not everyone comes. And so he says, go and compel them to come in. Compel people to come in. And Jesus finishes the parable by saying, many are called, but few are chosen. And that's the difference between a general calling and an effectual calling. So a lot, everyone's invited, but those whom God effectually calls actually come. And so this is the calling he's talking about. It's the call to salvation that you and I have received and that these Ephesians have received also. And in light of this, in light of the fact that God has called you and blessed you and adopted you and sanctified you and made you righteous, justified you, sealed you, in light of this calling, that brings you hope. If you have hope today, it's because of what God has done for you, right? Do you have hope to this morning? And where is that hope? Is your hope in you or is it in God? And if you have hope today, it's because of him and this calling. But, now Paul says, there is a, a walk that we're instructed by in this calling. He says, I beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation. So what does it mean to walk worthy? What does that mean? I thought it wasn't about being worthy, right? And if, you know, here in Utah, we got lots of people who talk about being worthy. You got to be worthy to go to the temple. You got to be worthy to take the sacrament. Worthy to do all these things. Is now... Paul going back on himself? Is he saying that we were saved by grace, not by works, and now all of a sudden we have to be worthy of this calling? And if we're not worthy, we're going to be kicked out? Is that what he's saying? That's absolutely not what he's saying. That wouldn't be consistent with anything that he said. But 
Perhaps other translations are better than the King James, but the word isn't worthy in the Greek. It's not the idea of being worthy to attain something or being worthy to maintain something, but the word is actually suitable. It's axios in the Greek, and it means suitably or appropriately. So he's just saying walk appropriately or suitably with this calling. Not worthy of it, but a suitable walk. One that is consistent with the call. One that is, it flows out of that call. It's consistent. And this is what he's calling us to. How ought we to behave as people who have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ? How ought we to walk as people who have been chosen, sealed, blessed, In Philippians 1.29, Philippians 1.27, excuse me, Paul uses the same word, but he, it, it is translated this way, let your conduct be as it becomes the gospel of Christ. So did you know that there's actually a walk and a conduct that becomes grace? Can you guess what that is? It's grace. If we're saved by grace, then we ought to walk in grace. Right? And to not walk in grace is not consistent. It's not suitable. It's not appropriate. It doesn't become the gospel. Paul's not saying that if you don't walk in grace, because by the way, we all fail pretty bad in this, and we're growing in this, and this is the idea of maturing in Christ as we as we understand God's grace deeper and his love, we will walk in this more. He's not saying that if you, if you don't walk in grace, you're going to be kicked out. That's not what he's saying. And all the commands in the New Testament, have, they have no sense of that at all. But the sense is just simply, you have been saved by grace. You are blessed. You are sealed. How ought you to walk? That's it. We ought to walk this way. Not to get anything but just because it it's becomes its fitting of the gospel. I used to think, when I read this verse in chapter, in chapter 4, verse 1, I used to think I knew what that meant, walking worthy, because I didn't read on. Because it tells us in verse 2 and 3 what that is. But I used to, I don't know, I just read verse 1, and I just didn't read on. I'm like, oh yeah, walk worthy, that makes... Perfect sense. You've got to be worthy of the gospel. You've got to keep the commandments. You've got to not sin. That's walking worthy of the gospel. But he tells us in verse 2 and 3, and let's look at that. He says, walk worthy of the calling wherewith you are called, with all lowliness, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, and endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, period. It's one sentence. So he tells us exactly how. And the rest of this section really just opens this up. But in that one sentence, he tells us what it is to walk worthy. Is that what you thought or what you think living a life that is consistent with the gospel looks like? Or has it just been this life of perfection and holiness and not sinning? Because that's not what it says here. Paul beseeches us. He doesn't command us. He doesn't say, you must do this or else you're out. He just beseeches. He just exhorts. He just encourages. All those are good translations of that same word. 
He beseeches. That's one thing I love about Paul and lots of his letters. He is always saying, I beseech you. A few times he makes command. But most of the time, he doesn't want to twist people's arms. He doesn't want to say, I'm the apostle and you have to listen to me. I command you to do this and to do that. He doesn't. He just appeals to you as a brother. He says, look, we've been blessed. We've been saved. We've been sealed. We've been forgiven. I beseech you. I beg you. I encourage you. I exhort you. Let's walk consistently with that. There's no sense of strong-arming or threatening or warning, but just encouraging. So I've I wanted to look at the next two verses here, two and three, and I've picked out nine qualities of a suitable walk in these two verses. So nine qualities. And we'll just look at those briefly because we'll have lots of time in the next, throughout the next weeks as we study this section to look into them more deeply. But nine qualities of a worthy walk or a suitable walk of the gospel. And here they are. The first one is wholeness. Or completeness. The second is lowliness. The third is gentleness. The fourth is patience. Fifth is forbearance. And the sixth is love. Diligence. Unity. And peace. So we'll look at each one. The first one, wholeness. You say, where did you get that from? In verse 2, he says, with all lowliness. But the word all, I just want to look at. He says, all lowliness. If you, if you want to walk in a way that's consistent with your salvation, then not only should you be lowly and meek and patient, but you should have all lowliness and meekness and patience. A completeness of those things. A regularity in your life. A consistency of patience in your life. When we say someone is, has all patience, if we were to say, uh, you know, Peter. Peter has all patience. All patience. What do we mean when we say that? Do we mean that when Peter is patient, he has a lot of patience? But when he's not being patient, he doesn't. So at those times when he is being patient, he's got all patience. Or does having all patience means, does that mean he's patient always? There's, he doesn't get impatient to have all patience. And I think this is what it's, this is, this is the second. It means that he has all patience. That means he's patient in all sorts of circumstances, in all sorts of times, in all sorts of hard times and tribulations, he's exercising all patience. There's a consistency in his walk. He's not just patient when there's you know, one person around that maybe he likes and impatient when there's a person that he doesn't like that's around. He's got a consistency of patience because his patience isn't just directed at people that he likes. His patience is drawn from the gospel. So he can be patient with all. So as we grow in our maturity... In Christ, and as we begin to learn to walk in grace out of the love of God, out of the doctrine, out of the gospel, as we grow, we should grow in 
the wholeness of what we do in wholeness and completeness and regularity of walk. Do you understand? Does that make sense? You understand what I'm saying? As we grow in Christ and in grace, we'll grow not only in just these things here and there, but these things will begin to manifest in our life regularly in all that we do, in all circumstances. So that's the first quality of a suitable walk. How do you walk consistently with being saved by grace? You show grace to all, not just to some. There's a completeness and a wholeness. Literally, in the Greek, it means all possible. So as all possible lowliness, all possible forbearance, all possible patience, you're walking in it. I feel very far from that. But I, I see this is what is consistent with the gospel. I want to grow in my knowledge of Christ's love for me that I might begin to manifest these good things. So we're sort of speaking ideally this morning. But it's exciting to do that because we can see what it looks like. And certainly there's been people in this world that have seen that vision of grace and have walked in a measure that is an example for us. But it's wonderful to see that and to set that as our goal. Do you believe it's possible? Or is this just completely hypothesis and this is ridiculous in no way? Because, you know, as a Christian, being, you know, I know that being in the church around lots of Christians, this is not seen as possible. And it's acceptable to not think, so, think that you can do that. It's just like, yeah, it's expected, you know? Yeah, no one's going to be totally patient. And it's just like, you can get impatient every once in a while. I mean, God wants you to be patient and, and you, know, you know, that's a good fruit to be patient. But he doesn't expect you to be perfectly patient. And so when you do get impatient, whatever, it's just normal. You're like everybody else. And it's true, you are like everybody else. But God is calling us to not be like everybody else. God is calling us to walk in all possible patience. So before we even go any further, is it in your heart... Do you believe that this is possible? Like God can actually, by his grace and because of the gospel, only through the gospel, not through commandments, God can work into you a wholeness of lifestyle. We've got to believe it first before we can get there. I believe it. I believe it. And I'm excited. I want to be like that. So, this is a common theme in the New Testament, this growing into perfection and maturity, which really just means maturity. Growing up. But we've got to believe we can grow. Second, lowliness. Now, lowliness and meekness, we could lump them together and say they're the same thing because we think of lowliness, you think humility, you think meekness, you think humility. But Paul puts these two words next to each other, which means there is a difference. And lowliness literally means humility of mind. Paul is, he's, he's known to put multiple Greek words together, and here he does again, he puts two Greek words together, humility and mind. And so lowliness means having a humble mind or a humble opinion of oneself, a deep sense of one's own littleness. That's the way Thayer describes that word. So it's in your mind, you have a humble opinion of yourself. You're not thinking that you're some great thing. You're not thinking that you're better than anyone else. But you understand who you are. 
And when you understand who you are, there's humility there. It's not, oh, I understand who I am. There's pride. It should be the opposite. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, familiar verse, Paul says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, the same word, let each esteem others better than themselves. Let each esteem others better than themselves. So Paul says that, but he also lived that. In Acts 20, 19, when he's talking to the Ephesian Christians there in Miletus, he says to them, you know how when I was with you, I served with all humility of mind. You remember that? He said, I served with all humility of mind. So Paul himself served. So he's our example now of what this looks like. And as our example, we have another insight. Remember Paul often says, I'm the least of all saints. Remember that? In Ephesians, we've already read it in chapter 3, Paul says in verse 8, he's, the, he's less than the least of all saints. And in another part of the scripture, Paul says that he doesn't even, he's not worthy to be called an apostle because he used to persecute the Christians. So if you look at Paul, you get a picture of what this lowliness is. He knows who he is. He knows that he was a persecutor of Christians. He's aware that he doesn't deserve to be saved. He doesn't deserve to go to heaven. He doesn't deserve to be even being used by God in the way that he is. And he's aware of that. And because he's aware of that, he's got a humble and low opinion of himself. And it's not just Paul that can feel that way. Each one of us can feel that way. You didn't have to kill Christians and persecute Christians and put them in prison to feel that way. But if you just read the Bible, compare your life to it, and you go, wow, I definitely do not deserve to go to heaven. I don't deserve to be here in this place and to be in fellowship with the saints. So it's a humble knowledge of who you are. Do you understand? Consistent with the gospel. It's inconsistent with the gospel for you to be puffed up and proud and thinking you're so great. And I'm here at church, and I'm going to heaven because I'm so great. No, it doesn't make any sense, according to the gospel. It doesn't, it's not suitable. But what is suitable is to understand that the only reason I'm here is because of God's grace. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm the chief of sinners. Paul said that's a worthy saying to be accepted by everybody. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. We need to grow in this as we understand the gospel. We'll grow in that saying, and understanding that saying, Jesus Christ came into the world to save me. So that, that speaks of his love for a scumball like me, you know. That would change things, I think, if we began to walk towards one another in lowliness. That would change things. The opposite, Paul warns, don't be high-minded, so there's lowly-minded and there's high-minded. And high-minded, as in context of those verses, is looking down on other people and saying, I'm better than they are. They don't deserve to be in. I deserve to be in. That's high-mindedness. So that's the opposite. We don't want to walk that way. We're aware of our sin, and we're aware of God's grace, the reason why we're here. The third, meekness. Although the word is probably better translated gentleness. There's a word for meekness in Greek and there's a word for gentleness and the word gentleness is used here. So actually Paul says, if 
you want to walk in a way that's consistent with the gospel of grace, be gentle. Walk in gentleness towards one another. Now, the word was used by the ancient Greeks in their writings, but the New Testament often brings new life to words. And the ancient Greeks used this word, but what they thought the word meant, how they used the word, was civility as opposed to savagery. So they would just say, being whatever this word is, being gentle, is being civil, manners, as opposed to being a savage. But Paul packs it with new meaning, or he, or he takes that and he just puts it on steroids. Being gentle is actually what Jesus said of himself. Remember, in one of the very few passages in the New Testament where it describes the heart of Jesus and the character of Jesus, Jesus himself says, come unto me, for I'm gentle. He uses this word here. I'm gentle. So it's really a divine attribute. It's not just civility. It's not just, you know, not burping at the table. Which is a good thing to not do. But it's bigger than that. It's a divine attribute of gentleness. It means considering another person and being tender with them for their sake. <laughs> no burping, Kim. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh-oh. <laughs> yep. Gentleness. Um, the proverb says this. It says, gentleness turns away wrath. Right? So... Gentleness turns away wrath. I believe, personally, that if we were to walk in gentleness towards one another, then our home life would be completely different. Completely different. I think gentleness is the most underestimated quality. It, it goes so far. It goes such a long way. A gentle word, just spoken to another person, just transforms a relationship and an environment. Um, and just the opposite is true. But if gentleness turns away wrath, then gentleness is an essential ingredient for peace. So if you want to have peace amongst brethren, if you want to have peace in your home, have gentleness in your home. And you'll have peace in your home. Gentleness is consistent with the gospel because God was gentle to us. Christ said, come unto me. While God could have been rough with us, he laid his life down for us. Four, long-suffering or patience. And the word suffering is actually in patience also because patience comes from a Latin word, patior, which means to suffer. So it's essentially the same thing. So whenever you think of patience, it has to include some kind of suffering. Or provocation. So, you know, when are we going to the ice cream store? Not till tomorrow. Oh, you know, there's a bit of suffering there. And that's when patience can be exercised in the time of suffering. It could be little suffering, it could be big suffering, but it requires suffering. So when Paul says patience, he's expecting us to suffer in some sense. It assumes you're bearing some kind of an affliction. Anyone? 
have any opportunity to exercise patience at all? I think patience is the test of a real of real character. Some people think being a man and being strong is how many people you can beat up. People think that way. I think rather it's how many people you don't beat up when you want to beat them up, you know? And it's responding in gentleness and love and patience towards other people. Patience, okay, going to the ice cream store, you have to wait. What about patience with one another? Which is what he goes on into the next one, forbearance. Patience, you could say, deals more with just you and your character, maybe waiting for something. Forbearance is when you're dealing with others, when you're dealing with one another. So now someone else is being a jerk to you. Someone else is provoking you. Someone else is loving you. Are you going to be patient with them? Are you going to forbear towards them like God forbeared towards you? Right? So how do you live consistently with that? If you were a jerk to God and you sinned and you deserved hell and God forbeared and was patient with you and laid his life down, then the only consistent response to that is for you to be patient and forbear one another. Because when Wallace does something to me or when I do something to Wallace, whatever we could do to each other does not compare to what both of us did to God. Right, Wallace? Whatever I could sin against you doesn't compare to your sin against God and vice versa. And God was patient. What excuse do we have? Right? So the famous story Jesus said about the lender. One man owed $50,000. He was forgiven. And he left there really happy that he was forgiven, found a guy who owed him five bucks. Give me my money. Go to prison if you can't pay me. And it, it's supposed to be shocking. It's like, that doesn't make any sense. That's inconsistent. And so it's inconsistent for us too. So may we grow in grace. Forbearing with one another assumes that there's going to be sin as well, right? And one another is the brother's. So right here, it assumes there's going to be sin amongst the brothers. Right here. There's going to be sin amongst, someone's going to wrong me in this room, or I'm going to wrong somebody in this room. Are you going to forbear? Am I going to forbear? How do we respond to sin? That's where grace comes in. And the Bible, is, it's all about grace. It's all about living in grace. You can't walk in grace where there's no sin. You can't do it. And God couldn't have shown us his grace and glorify his grace if there was no sin in us. Paul deals with that in Romans. They therefore say, oh, well, then maybe we should sin that grace may abound, right? I mean, if what you're saying is true, Paul, that our sin glorifies God's grace and that was his purpose from before the foundation of the world, then why should God even judge me as a sinner? Because I'm just fulfilling his will, right? We should sin because as we sin, God's grace abounds. The fact is, God's grace does abound when we sin, but that doesn't mean we should sin. And the fact is, we can only walk in grace when there is sin. That doesn't mean we should sin. There is going to be sin. doesn't mean we should sin, but when there is sin, that's when we can walk in grace at that time. So we need that occasion. Verse, uh, last part of verse 2, he says, Forbear with one another in love. So six is love. And this speaks of the motivation of the stimulus as we've talked about before. What motivates us 
to do these things? What motivates me to forbear? The motivation should be love, not a commandment, not even, not even this right here. I hope you don't just read this as just a, a commandment to live by because Paul's not giving a commandment. He's just encouraging us to walk in love. He's not saying, here's your checklist now, now that you're a believer. There's a new checklist. Make sure you keep all these things. No, he's just saying the motivation should be love and love only. So when somebody wrongs me, I shouldn't think, okay, they wronged me, but the commandment says I shouldn't respond, so I'm not going to respond. But my motivation should be they wronged me, but I should consider them and think about them and how much God loves them and what God's done for them. And that should motivate me not to strike back. Considering the other. Love. Agape. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 used to kind of be confused for me because I used to read 1 Corinthians chapter 13 as a bunch of commands. Be patient. Be kind. Be not rude. Don't envy. Etc. Etc. Then I realized there's no command there whatsoever. He's just describing what love is. If you love your neighbor, you will be patient with your neighbor. So all we need to do is think about loving our neighbor. It's not, I need to be more kind, because you're still thinking about you and what you need to do. You need to take your eyes off you and put it on your neighbor. Start thinking about them. You'll find yourself being patient with them, just thinking about them. So as you read 1 Corinthians 13, don't see that as a bunch of commands because the focus, the, the, where's the light? The light is still shining on you. The spotlight's on you. I need to be patient. I need to be kind. The whole thing of 1 Corinthians 13 is just put the spotlight on someone else and love them. You will be patient. You don't even need to think about it. So as we love, then we're motivated and these things just come. And of course, how do we love? We love by knowing his love. The next one, the beginning of verse 3, is endeavor or diligence. It's perhaps a better translation. Here's the point of this one. Brothers and sisters, these things require exertion, effort, and diligence. Now, is that inconsistent with God's grace working in us? No, not at all. We acknowledge God himself is the one who causes us and works in us. Paul said he strives according to God's working. But nonetheless, you can't just think that this is just going to happen if you just don't put any endeavor into it. And we should be endeavoring to walk in love. After 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, pursue love. That's an active, aggressive thing. It couldn't have probably been a stronger word that he used there. But we're to pursue love. That means we set that as our goal and go for it. Say, I want, to, I want to pursue these things. I want to walk in love and grace. It's something that you have to endeavor after. Of course, God's the one who's doing that in you. We have to also know how to go about endeavoring as well. There's certainly a method to that as well. Of course, the method is to know God's love, to, to to um, remind each other of the things God has done for us. But you have to go for it. And so to walk consistently with the gospel requires us to actively pursue love. 
to actively pursue unity, to actively pursue peace. And it actually means in the Greek to make speed or hasten. So it's like, I want to hasten this. I want to hasten this in my life. I want to mature. Think about a a young person maturing and growing up. They can actively choose to start listening and start, they say, okay, I want to grow up. You know, I realize I'm like, I'm just thinking like a kid these days and I just want to learn. So I'm going to start listening to my dad. I'm going to start listening to my mom. I'm going to start actively pursuing maturity. And so in this way, God wants us to actively pursue maturity as a Christian and grow up together. We'll talk more about that in later in chapter 4. And unity here and peace. So Paul says here, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I think this, essentially, everything fits into this. The unity of the Spirit, that is, we are unified in the Spirit. Our unity is in heaven. Our unity is not because we all dress the same way and wear the same t-shirts. Our unity is in the Spirit. It's a spiritual unity that we have because of our identity in Christ, because we're all part of that one family. God has been putting together a family from every tribe and nation, and he's making us one in Christ. Jesus prayed, this is so key to Christ, and right before his death, he prayed that we would be one in him. One, just as the Father and the Son are one, so that we would be one with one another. And Christ is the one that makes us have unity. Our unity is found in him. Our unity is not found in anything else. And uh, Brad and I read a really great article the other day on unity. And it essentially it said, unity is found in our identity. We may not all think the same. That's unanimity. We may not all behave the same. That's uniformity. But we all have unity because of our identity in Christ. We're all one in him. Now, we may grow in those other things, but that isn't our unity. And what happens is sometimes Christian churches begin to define their unity by these other things because as they do begin to grow together in uniformity, let's say, we begin to behave graciously. Let's say that as we here at All Saints go on in grace, we begin to actually behave in gracious ways. and we get, There's a consistency about our walk together. Or let's say we begin to think in similar ways. We begin to agree on doctrinal matters. That still isn't the basis of our unity. But what happens is, is a newcomer comes along, and let's say we've been going for a while, and we're thinking the same way, we're behaving the same way, we're loving each other, and a newcomer comes along who, he's a Christian, he believes in the gospel, he's been saved, he's been forgiven, but certainly he's not very mature, and he's gotten up, he doesn't have many good fruits, and he's not very loving, and he doesn't agree with us in all these things, do we say, get out of here? Because our unity is found in our uniformity and our unanimity. We might have grown in those things, but we must not kick people out just because they're new or just because they don't grow with us, right? So there's a distinction there, and this is talking about our unity in Christ. What also is interesting is it says to keep. You're endeavoring to keep the unity, which means, one, you have it. You're not trying to get it. You have unity, 
And to keep something or to be watchful of something means it has a lot of value. You keep it because it has value. Like, for instance, my laptop. I don't, just let, I don't want to let that just lay around. You know, I, I try to keep that from getting stolen because it has a lot of value to me and because it has a lot of my work on it and it's important to me. So when I you know, get out of a car and I leave my laptop in, I usually ask the driver, can you make sure all the doors are locked? Because the laptop has value. I don't want to lose it. But here's the sense. Keep the unity of the spirit. Do we, are we more concerned with our possessions getting lost than our unity getting lost? Because here he says, keep it. And I think in the same way or more and greater than how we keep our possessions, we lock our doors and we make sure that safe is closed or we don't lose that money or our wallet. In the same way we're always keeping an eye on those things that are important, we should also endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit. Do we see that as such a valuable, precious thing? Do we really see that as valuable? Or are we so quick to just let it go? Okay, they don't agree with us, get out of here. I've got plenty of Christians to go around. There's enough here. Or are we jealous for being unified with each one, each person? And it's not enough just to say Brad and I are unified. I want Wallace and I to be unified. Well, we are unified in Christ. I don't want to behave inconsistently with that. I don't want to let there be a rift in our relationship. Because the bottom line is we are unified for both Christians. We'll find out in heaven. Wouldn't it be an awful thing Think about this. Wouldn't it be an awful thing on this, in your life, this time of, in your life, on this earth, to have a true brother, a true sister that you have no relationship with and there's discord and strife and you don't fellowship with them and then all of a sudden in heaven you're together? Wouldn't that be awful? It's like, oh, there you are. Oh, man, I was a jerk on earth, wasn't I? <laughs> you know? Here we are. Rejoicing in grace. We're both forgiven. We're both saved. We're both worshiping God. There's no one better than anyone else. What were we thinking on the earth, you know? What a horrible thing that will be. I mean, it will be an occasion for tears, I'm sure. God will be glorified and things will be worked out. But it's just an awful thought to me, you know? I often think about that, like, when a new believer comes in. And, like, let's say I just don't pay any attention to him or I just you know, treat him badly or because he's new, whatever. I often think about, like, when I see him in heaven, he'll remember that, like, this is the way I treated him on earth. That was horrible. You know what I'm saying? Keep the unity of the spirit, he says. Do we see this as valuable? Um, Because God certainly does. And I believe it's in this unity that God is glorified. It's in this unity amongst people and we all know that relationship between people is one of the most difficult things and it is only through Christ that we can be unified as we talked about a few weeks ago the peace that Jew and Gentile have or the peace that any broken relationship can have that brings God such glory because it shows grace in action and so I believe as the church matures as this temple is being built and as the church matures in Christ one of the things that will shine, that God wants to see, is the love that we have for one another. As we mature in Christ, we'll mature in unity, in living out that unity that we actually have. And that will be a a testimony to the world and to angels and bring him glory. 
And lastly, peace. Like I said, Christ brings peace. John Gill, he said this about peace. Peace is what the saints are called unto in the effectual calling. So you're called to peace, one of the verses say, 1 Corinthians 7. You're called to peace. You're called to have peace with one another. Peace is what is suitable to God, who is the God of peace, and to Christ, who is the Prince of Peace, and to the Holy Spirit, whose fruit is peace, and to the gospel, which is the gospel or glad tidings of peace, and to the character which the saints bear, which is that of sons of peace. Isn't that a wonderful description of, of what we're to be as saints? Sons of peace. Sons and daughters of peace. Peace with God, pointing people how to have peace with God, and peace with man also. Now we know that it's two ways. Like It says, as much as is in you, live at peace with all men. We can have peace in our hearts towards all men, whether they're saved or whether they're lost. They might want to cut our heads off, but we can have peace. But the character of us as saints is peace. I have peace with God and peace with my fellow man. Even the one who wants to cut my head off, I have peace towards him. I don't hate him. I don't want him dead, you know. How is this? It's because of Christ. It's because of grace. It's because of the gospel. This is how God wants us to be marked. And this is the bond of unity. How do you have unity? You have it in peace. Peace is what unifies Just on Friday as we were reading Hebrews 12, just that really was speaking to me about peace. That, that's Christian maturity. Christian maturity is when we are walking in peace towards one another. And here's the sum of it all. And I believe this is a really wonderful way to put it or a really wonderful thought just to sum this up. But the sum of all this is, is, is peace. And this is what it is. Sin no longer has to separate men from God because of Jesus Christ. Sin no longer has to separate man from God. The, the gospel isn't stop all your sins so you can be reconciled. The gospel is because of Jesus and his blood, you can be reconciled to God as a sinner in your ungodly state. Sin doesn't have to keep you from God anymore. That's a wonderful news. And it's only possible through Christ. But here's the, flip, here's the other side of the coin. Sin no longer has to separate man from man anymore. You don't have to have broken relationships because of sin anymore, because of Christ and his grace. And unfortunately, sin does still separate man from God because there are those who don't, who don't believe on Christ. So sin does separate them doesn't have to, though, if they'd only believe. And unfortunately, sin does separate man from man. You know, someone gets sinned against and then they put the wall up because they don't know grace and they don't want to walk in grace. But it doesn't have to. Sin no longer has to be an issue. And can you imagine what that does to our relationships with one another? That sin doesn't have to cause a rift in our relationship anymore? What then can cause a relationship? rift in our relationship. Nothing. Nothing whatsoever. There's nothing someone can do if we're walking in grace and we're remembering the gospel. There's nothing someone can do to cause a rift in relationship. 
And so that's the sum of what he's saying here. How do you walk consistently with this? The fact that no sin can separate you from God, there's no condemnation. Also, essentially, in all these things that we've looked at, it's this, the sum of it. No sin has to separate you from any person anymore. You don't have to respond in an unloving way or a lawful way. Isn't that awesome? So, that's where we'll stop. But that's what Paul's encouraging us to do. Let's walk consistently. Let's walk suitably with the gospel of grace, with everything that we've read in the last three chapters. So let's hasten that. I just want to encourage us here. Let's hasten that. Let's believe we can, because God is able and willing to do, as we just heard in the prayer last week. And let's be diligent and hasten that. Let's say, yeah, I want to mature. I want to grow in this. I don't want to delay. So Lord, we thank you for the hope of your calling from taking us from um, an utterly hopeless state, Lord, without Christ and without hope and seating us up in the heavenlies with you by your grace, not because of what we deserved. I thank you, God. And I thank you that you've done this because you love us. And I pray for each of us here this morning that we would be able to comprehend together with all, with all of us, Lord, what is your love and the breadth and the depths of it. Lord, just fill our vision with the knowledge of your love for us in a way that is deeper than we've ever known. And by that love, Lord, stimulate us to love each other. Thank you that you're, you break down all the walls that keep us from each other, Lord. Thank you that grace can overcome it all. And I pray that you would cause us to love one another, to not put any walls up. And you'd convict us when we do, Lord, by your Holy Spirit. Teach us to walk suitably and appropriately and consistently. In Jesus' name, amen.